turning this evening to the book of Ezra, chapter 1 and verse 1. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing. And our subject is a world-changing miracle because that's what we come to in the book of Ezra. Ezra, a priest in the line of Aaron and a scribe, a doctor of the law, and one who lived in the court of the emperor of the Persian Empire, one who had access to the emperor, to the king. I'm sure you know that in the book of Ezra, the first six chapters are all about the first return of 42,000 plus Israelites from captivity in Babylon to Judah and to Jerusalem. The first great return. Ezra was not with it. He remained in uh, Persia. He remained in office as a leader among the Israelites in the capital and as an attendant at court. But uh, he had access to the documents. He had access, privileged access, to all the Persian records. He quotes from them. He understands them. And so he is plainly the author of this book. If you look, and I'm sure you've done this before, at the last two verses of Second Chronicles, the preceding book, you find they are exactly the same as the opening verses of the book of Ezra, which establishes that Ezra was in all probability the author also of First and Second Chronicles, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but also with access to all records. So Ezra, the famous scribe and doctor of the law, he is the author of it all. Of course, the two books of Chronicles, originally one book, probably one book with Ezra and Nehemiah originally. But there is a gap between Second Chronicles and Ezra, which is obviously the 70 years captivity in Babylon. And now Ezra chapter 1 picks matters up. So the first contingent travelled from Babylon down to Judah in 538 BC. First one says, now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. It means, of course, in the first year of Cyrus reigning over Babylon as well, the whole empire, because he was actually king of Persia for many years before this. But 539 BC, the uh, fall of Babylon, 
538 BC, the following year, this great Cyrus edict, the proclamation throughout all the empire. Now, the proclamation reads in verse 2, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he hath charged me to build him an house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and so on. Now we do have the so-called Cyrus Cylinder, and you've seen it in the British Museum, which is this proclamation, or edict, but it's not quite as we find it in the Bible. The Cyrus Cylinder is a little different in its wording. Is there a discrepancy? No, we're believing the scripture. We believe that what we have here is the words of the original proclamation. The Cyrus Cylinder is possibly one of a number of writings, as it were. It's a baked clay cylinder, but it's probably one of a number that went throughout the empire. And they would all have differed from each other a little bit. They were not inspired documents. And some would have been written by officials and so on who would have cast them in the usual mould of these inscriptions and written them in the same way. So the Cyrus Cylinder bears some of the markings of a heathen, pagan document. But the original proclamation is that which you read preserved in Scripture. Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord God of heaven, the Lord in capital letters, it's the sacred name, the unpronounceable Jehovah. Cyrus is using that. The Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He attributes his station, his position, his conquest to the God of Israel. And he goes on to call him the God, the only God. This is very powerful. People like to draw attention to the differences between the biblical proclamation record given by Ezra and the Cyrus Cylinder. Well, it was a pagan empire and the various copies that went out, as I've said, would have reflected their various copyists and authors and the style in which they worked. But this would seem to be the original. Back to verse 1 for a moment. Look at the wording of it. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. And in this book, that kind of language is usually used of the stirring up of the Israelites to some spiritual duty or something good. So should we dilute it in the opening verse and say, well, this could be true, but is it necessarily true that God only stirred up the spirit of Cyrus in the sense that he made a great impression upon him and he became convinced that the Israelites should be sent back 
and that their temple should be restored. When we look at the language throughout, it's very telling. Uh, people tend to say, oh, what happened was this, that Cyrus had, yes, they'll say, perhaps God did it, a very enlightened policy. He moved against the Babylonian policy of deportation, deportation of whole populations to make them slaves, servants, cheap labor in, uh, elsewhere in the Babylonian empire. And he chose to send them home to their homelands and give them self-government and things like that. And he did it generally and the Israelites benefited and went home and built their temple. But that's not the way we read it in the Bible. What we read in the Bible is that somehow Cyrus so, was so overwhelmed by God that the thing uppermost in his mind was that the Israelites should be sent back and their temple, their house of God, should be reconstructed and their witness resumed. And the proclamation happened to benefit other nations that wanted to do likewise also. But it wasn't a general proclamation that happened to benefit the Jews. It was something which is put across to us in the Bible as specifically for the Jews and for the temple that happened to benefit others. And I think it's very important to make that clear. Look at it in the narrative. Verse 2, I pick it up halfway through. And he, the God of Israel, hath charged me to build him an house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. That's uppermost. That's the key matter. It's the primary matter. Verse 3. Who is there among you of all his people? If God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is the God which is in Jerusalem. So that's the original edict, the original proclamation. That is staggering, friends. It is quite amazing. If you had been an Israelite, and let's say you'd been in the minority of Israelites who really believed in the messianic promises, and you believed in the destiny of your nation, that through your nation, Messiah would be born. That prophecy, ancient prophecy, had laid it all out that such and such would happen and you'd be in your own land and the Messiah would come following a forerunner who would be John the Baptist, of course. And he would come and he would do thus and thus and ultimately he would bring the world into judgment. But if you believe these things with all your heart, you would be almost in despair. Why, the northern tribes, Israel, have long since fallen and gone into captivity. Now Judah and Jerusalem have fallen. We've been in captivity in Babylon for 70 years. We have not had our own jurisdiction. We've been pulled to pieces. We're all over the place, dispersed everywhere. We can no longer see 
how prophecy can be fulfilled, how we could ever return to our land and our nation, how we could ever be self-determining and bring forth the Saviour and continue our temple worship. All that is essential. The types and the shadows which point forward to the Saviour, they must continue until the moment he comes and all is fulfilled. It's lost. It's gone. They would be in despair. And now another emperor has taken over, Cyrus. He's going to follow the same policies. It's inconceivable. He would do anything other than that. Nobody had ever heard of going back on deportations, sending people back to their homeland, restoring to them self-determination. That was the trouble. Every emperor would say, we do that. Then they become nationalistic and they revolt and they rebel and they refuse homage and they gather together, one nation upon nation, and they act against us and the empire is overthrown. It's the last thing an emperor will ever do. But God so powerfully deals with Cyrus, whether to the point of conversion, we won't debate until later in the book, or whether just powerful, overwhelming impression upon him that he does the unthinkable and he reverses the policy of all emperors forever and sends the captives home and grants self-determination. <clears throat> I ought to say, of course, Israel never knew total autonomy again. That was a privilege that was gone forever. They'd never have autonomy They'd always be under an emperor now until the coming of Christ. But they did have self-determination and self-government and liberty, even though they had homage to pay, and they were in their own country. And things were back on track. Prophecy was back on track. What happened? Well, the overwhelming of Cyrus by the living God. Look at verse 4. Whosoever remaineth in any place where he sojourneth, let the men of his place help him with silver and with gold and with goods. Now the text is a little difficult, but it really is uh, an urging for anyone who remains for any reason to uh, give them the wherewithal. Well, dear friends... That's the original decree. It's against reason. The government of Cyrus and all his regional rulers would be horrified that everything is going into reverse. Everything is going to change to take away colonialism overnight. Unprecedented. The Western world never managed it in modern times, and yet here it's done. Who will go? Well, the strange thing is not that many went. 42,000 plus. First time. It's going to be a second journey, some years after, which will be led by Ezra himself, and there's going to be a and that's why in 
chapter 7 of the book, Ezra switches his narrative to the first person because now he's with them. He's present. And there'll be a third party, later still, under Nehemiah. But this is the first group. However, that first group, it's been estimated that one family in 20 went. Some people say one family in 25, and even 30. That's not many. It's a very small percentage. Others estimate 2% went. As we've got the figure, and we have to estimate probably the number of Israelites that there were in captivity, or Judeans. So few went. Why was that? Well, some would have been sick. Some would have had ailing members of the family, perhaps. Might have been legitimate reasons why some couldn't go. But most were settled in Babylon. Now it was their view that they were better off in Babylon than in Judah. And they didn't want to go. But not to the promised land, not to the Judah. No, not there. The place is in ruins. Everything has been demolished. Our enemies from the surrounding nations have entered into our land and they're everywhere, living here, there and everywhere. We've got to somehow make our peace with them and put up with them. And the city of Jerusalem is destroyed and the temple is no more. It's all work and toil and we're very comfortable and we're very settled. We might be served in class in Babylon. We might be low-paid workers, but we're better off than going home to all that. The dangers of the journey, the dangers of settlement. Who knows what will happen? But they were settled, and they didn't want to go. It's tragic, really, isn't it? Such a small number returned. You could apply that to the present day. Somebody asked me not so long ago, why decadent trends have got into evangelical churches everywhere. Since in the last 20 years, where there used to be a stand, so many more have buckled to contemporary Christian worship and sheer worldliness in the church. And you go to services in many Bible-believing churches and there are people jigging around on platforms who look like worldlings, behave like worldlings, play music like worldlings. The whole thing is so Babylon and it's changed the temperature and the climate and the ethos of the churches tremendously. And now it's all what's pleasurable, what's enjoyable, what's entertaining. There isn't anything like the amount of dedication or Christian service. And even morality has fallen. What can happen? Will it ever go back? Well, if there's an awakening or revival, I dare say many will be called out. But will it be like the return from Babylon? One family in 20. 
We want to go back to something purer and better and biblical and deep and worthwhile. And the others will be stuck. Oh no, we prefer where we are. We're used to it now. This is the way we do things now. This is the attitude we like. We've grown accustomed to it. Because that's how it was with Babylon. So few returned. Tragic. So sad. I remember when uh, my wife and I first came to the tabernacle 52 years ago. I may have told you this. I don't want to bore you with it if I have. But we knew quite a lot of people from different churches in South London who were saying, oh, it's so bad at our church. We've got a preacher now who's half liberal and he says crazy things that are not biblical and we don't believe. And this has gone down and that's gone down. And if there was something better, we'd go. Well, we came to the tabernacle and it was very low at the time. What happened to all those people? Did they kind of rally to the flag? We represented what they said they wanted. Did they come? No, they didn't. They stayed where they moaned and groaned and thought it had gone downhill and gone offline. But they stayed. They were trapped. They rather liked some aspects of it. Be careful where you go to church. If the Lord moves you out of London and circumstances overrule and you go somewhere, support a church which is all for the gospel, has absolutely nothing to do with contemporary Christian worship and all the decadent trends that abound around. Because very often, if you get into it, there'll be no recovery. You'll never come out of it. It'll weaken you, dilute you, spoil you, ruin you. I think that's a warning. It's legitimate to make from the Babylonian captivity. Most of them never went home. They were still intensely nationalistic Jews, culturally. They never stopped worshipping, even though they didn't have the utensils of worship all the gold and the temple accoutrements were all in Babylon well now in Persia in the royal court they didn't have any of the trappings but wherever they were they were intensely nationalistic but they'd lost their fundamental purpose the purpose of their nation its destiny, its privileges its messianic hope they'd lost it all it had gone. So they never went back. Well, coming to a brighter side, look at verse 5. Then rose up the chief of the fathers of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites with all them whose spirit God had raised. It's a beautiful translation. To go up to build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. Now, Many of those chiefs and priests stayed behind also, but many went, and that was so vital. There were godly among them, 
and the godly went, the chief of the fathers. They had men of depth, ancient men. Of course, you had to be over 65, over 70 to have ever seen Judah. You'd been in captivity 70 years. You had to be quite old to have ever seen the temple before its destruction. Then rose up the chief of the fathers of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites with all them whose spirit God had raised lifted them up to see once again their real purpose and their destiny to make the coming Messiah known among the nations to keep alive the prophecies and the scriptures. And this was their fundamental purpose. What do you say for, friends? What do you say for? Or we could ask the Israelites, the Judeanites, the question, what are you going back to Israel for? Would they say, it's my home. I've got a pioneer spirit. I'm going to build a new home. And homestead, farmstead. It's, it's an adventure. We're going to build. And we're going to determine our own affairs. That's not what they would have replied to. They would have, at least fresh, when they heard the commission, they would have replied this. We're going to build the temple of the Lord. That was their purpose. With all them whose spirit God had raised to go up to build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. That was the specific and the fundamental purpose. To build their homes was incidental, necessary, vital. They must even do it first. But that didn't make it the primary thing. You've got to keep the rain out and look after your family. But they didn't lose sight of their fundamental purpose. They were there specifically as builders to build the temple. That was the call of God. Well, then what about you as a Christian? What do you save for? The right answer is to further the kingdom of God to which I've been admitted by grace and to serve its interests and its saviour and to make him known. Secondly, to bring up my family in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and to keep it well housed and clothed. But first of all, to obey the Lord and to serve him. Problems came in when they got their priorities mixed up. And they said, we'll put the temple on one side because our houses don't look beautiful enough yet. They're up, they're waterproof, they're sound, they're weatherproof, yes, but they're not places of beauty. We've got so much to do. Ornamentation, decoration, plasterwork, panel linings. When the priorities changed over, they were in trouble. The temples down the line, a more convenient time. But that's what happens to all of us. 
Our priorities go completely upside down. In fact, you know, one of the discoveries I made as a young Christian was in different churches, there were different attitudes to dedication or consecration to the Lord. And there were churches where this was optional. How can I illustrate it? Well, uh, you all know about the advanced driving test. Ask anyone about the advanced driving test, they'd say, well, I suppose it's a good idea. I suppose it's a very good thing. I suppose it would make the roads safer and reduce accidents and make us all more skilled drivers. If I knew somebody who had passed the advanced driving test, I'd say, good for you. But most of us will never take it. And we'll never think of taking it. It's optional. It's not vital. It's not necessary. And we won't do it. And to many Christians, Christian service is like that. Christian commitment, Christian dedication. Oh yes, it's very good to be a dedicated Christian. Yes, that is excellent. Yes, that is the best. I admire dedicated Christians who live consecrated lives. That's very, very good. But it's kind of optional. I can't quite attain to that. I'm very humble, you see. I can't quite get to that. So I'm happy not being a dedicated Christian. It's optional. It's best, but I won't make that. And that's what many Christians accept. And they go through lives, and if you ask them, make an inventory of all your accomplishments. Well, it would be about career and family and what the children are doing and, and how successful they've been. Well, that's good. There'd be nothing for the Lord. No Christian service, testimony, no real dedication and commitment. Now, at this stage, you see a call comes through a seemingly pagan emperor. This is your specific priority and purpose. Build the temple of the Lord. And many of them went. And they took on the hardship and the difficulty and the enemies in the region. And the people who remained helped them but more of them should have gone. That was the important thing. Our time is running out. Just final point. Look at this in verse 7. Also Cyrus the king brought forth the vessels of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had brought forth out of Jerusalem and had put them in the house of his gods. Even those did Cyrus, king of Persia, bring forth by the hand of Mithridath, the treasurer, and numbered them unto Sheshbazar. That's Zerubbabel, by the way. This is his Persian name. The prince of Judah. The first 42,000 plus had come out of Babylon into Israel under him. And, uh, but it's the giving of the gold and the silver and the utensils and the precious things from the temple 
How did they ever last 70 years with the Babylonians? And when Babylon was pillaged and looted and plundered, how were they ever recovered in one piece? And how were they willingly surrendered within a year by Cyrus? If Cyrus was a totally pagan emperor, you didn't do that. Your trophies of victory, all the riches and accoutrements of your enemies' gods, you didn't hand them back. Everything is turned upside down with Cyrus. And the necessary utensils of worship appointed by God in the temple are handed back intact. What a lot of encouragement that generation had. This is all prophesied. Over a century before, Isaiah had prophesied by name Cyrus and what he would do. Jeremiah had prophesied him in great detail in his works and what he would accomplish. Those prophecies had to be fulfilled. Cyrus is the second most prophesied human being in history. Christ is the most by far and Cyrus, oddly enough, is the second most prophesied person in history. Most people have never been prophesied, not even great ones. So prophecy was fulfilled. All the natural order was turned round. And the unexpected in point after point was accomplished. And the people of God were heading back to their land. These things are remarkable. This is, this is going to be a book of encouragement, a book of spiritual warfare, a book of strengthening, a book of divine intervention. There's a great deal to see, but a book of encouragement. This, this is like the Reformation. Everything turned upside down. And humanity given back the pure doctrines of the Bible. And humanity given back more than that. It's been rightly said that the Reformation, quite aside from its major gigantic spiritual accomplishments, the Reformation gave mankind back the power of reason. Everything was mad superstition before the Reformation. But the Reformation gave humanity back the power to think rationally. And it gave humanity back morality. What a transformation it was. Just a handful of monks, if you please who nobody had ever heard of, with no influence in the world. But when God moves, tremendous things happen. Revivals have had similar characteristics. But let's come close to home. An individual conversion is the same. It's such a miracle. A person's character changed. Inclinations, desires, hopes and wishes, everything transformed. 
by the power of the Spirit of God. Well, we're seeing it here. It's a book preeminently, to me at any rate, of challenge and encouragement. All the proofs they had as they went back that God was with them.